Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of the Value Guys. I'm a 25-year Wall Street veteran who has taken on a secret identity and gone undercover in order to provide my candid views on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen me on TV, you've seen me quoted in the news, but my bosses would never allow my unfiltered views on the air, so I've disguised my voice and they'll never know. Once a week after work, I sit down with Value Line, like I've done for 25 years. I drink, that's important, and I pick uh, three stocks each week, and I share them with you, the listener. Um, I have a couple of caveats. First, this show is for entertainment purposes only, if only my own, as I like to say. Secondly, I may be drinking. I may be drinking heavily, so keep that in mind. And finally, I may be completely uninformed. Um, and uh, what else? Did I say I may have some conflicts? I, I very well may. See all the caveats at www.thevalueguys.com where you'll see some bios and all the names have been changed but they're accurate pretty much. And um, and then there's, uh, there's, there's links there to a blog. I put summaries up of these comments and a few other gizmos out there. Um, the show uh, should be about 30 minutes, give or take. I don't know. I've been doing a new format this year. So uh, 30 minutes. And then I do a uh, a rant. Uh, I've been doing a rant this year, and it typically ends up being about taxes, things that are bad for capitalism, um, bad in this in to the extent that they keep uh, good ideas from blossoming when you tax people too much they you know aren't in a position to go out and do something new or start something because you know they don't have enough capital to do it so i rant about that then i give uh three i think pretty good ideas out of uh that week's value line this week i'm doing the february 19th 2010 edition i'm running late uh this week with the show as I've been doing. It's been very hectic in the office um, between, uh, well, year-end stuff is pretty well winding down. But uh, we're we're moving, so we're looking at space, picking out carpeting and things like that. It's ridiculous, but you got to do it. And uh, we're adding uh, to the staff, so we've been doing some uh, interviewing. And again, you got to get the right person. That's very time-consuming, so that's been taking a lot of time. I will say that there is a lot of talent around, and um, I uh, have had the pleasure of meeting a lot of very capable people. Uh, I just need one person, but anyway. Um, okay, let me uh, let me get to this week's rant. I think it might be just the same as last week, so I apologize. I have gotten a little email that my rants. And it's a new thing, so you got to give me a little break on the rant thing. I'm just evolving it, but um, that I've been getting a little long. And, I, you know, I have to admit, I they have been. Uh, so I'm going to try to keep this one a little short, particularly because it kind of duplicates something I've said before. But I want to weigh in once again, as I've done many times on this health care debate, uh, not to be uh, not taking sides other than to say, Let's do what makes sense for growing wealth per capita in America. One of the things that made America the richest country, not just in total, but in per capita as well, 
uh, is that, uh, you know, ideas could come here, freely flow. There wasn't a lot of tax. Uh, there wasn't a lot of bureaucracy. And government stayed small, so uh, capital was, you know, free to go back to work into return on capital generating ideas instead of uh, capital destroying ideas. And so here's what I want to talk about in terms of health care. I want to talk about supply and demand curves, and my conclusion is that um, if we, um, uh, you know, t t take some of the steps that are laid out in the uh, current uh, plan, we're going to do the opposite of what's intended. So obviously the intent is to improve the quality uh, of health care, reduce the price of health care a little bit, or the cost, they say, um, but the the power is to reduce price. Here's why that isn't a good idea in a demand and supply curve format. Uh, first, if you're new to this sort of thing, uh, draw a graph. So you draw a line down and then over. It's like a big L, you know. And on the left side, uh, that axis is called P, big P, price. And on the bottom, I put a big Q. Now, it could be quantity or quality. Of course, depends on the good. In this case, it very well could be whatever you want. It could be both, for that matter. It's just a proxy for uh, you know, how people want it. Do they want quantity? Do they want quality? There's really different demand curves for each of those, but we're going to simplify it. It could be either. So first, I'm going to draw the supply curve, and that's just meant to be a... Uh, it's a cost curve, but it starts at the bottom left, goes to the top right, and it represents um, at what price uh, a typical quantity will be delivered. And from the suppliers, in order to get more quantity, you have to pay more money. The cost uh, goes up as you, uh, as you increase supply. Um, so I draw that. That line is S0 for the initial supply curve let's say, zero time. Then I want to draw in a demand curve. That's going to slope from the top uh, left to the bottom right. I don't know if you're drawing along. Please feel free to. And I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not going too fast. Of course, you can rewind and play this again. But where those lines cross, so that line is Q0, quantity, I'm sorry, D0, demand at time zero. Okay. And where those two lines cross, so there's an X on your page now, and what you do is at the X, you draw a line straight down. It's going to cross the axis down there, the Q axis, at a spot. That's the current quantity or quality, either way. Then at the same point where the X crosses, the supply and demand curves, you're going to go directly, horizontally, to the left and cross at a point P. P0. Let's just call it that. How much time am I taking here? I, I hope you're sticking with this. This is interesting. If, if you care about this sort of thing, if, obviously you can hit off if you want. So now I've got my point zero. I've got Q0 on the bottom, P0 on the left. That's the current situation for price and quantity. Now what we're going to do, what the plan is, is to give 30 million people who don't have health care now, give them free health care for now, free. So what does that do? It increases the demand for health care. So where you have that line 
the D0 curve, or it's a line really, you call it a curve, the D0 line going from the top left to the bottom right, go out of, you know, an inch to the right and draw a parallel line also going from the top left to the bottom right. We're going to call that D1. Okay, and that represents the new demand curve for healthcare. It's out further because we've just added a bunch of people who are going to demand health care. So that moves out to the right. Now what happens is you can see there's a new X marks the spot. And if you're drawing along, please, I'll just try to work through this. So from where I'm at now, where P0 hits Q0, the new X, so I'm still on the original supply curve, S0, that line, and I'm moving from the point where S0 crosses D0, I'm moving toward a northeast direction to where I'm still on S0, but I'm moving to D1, okay? And from that point, I draw a line straight down to uh, the Q line, and I'm now at a new Q. That's Q1. Quantity is up. That's good. That's what we want. Okay, good. And I'm now going to draw a line from the spot where D1 intersects S0 directly horizontally out to the P-axis, and that's going to give me P1. So, uh-oh, so P's up. That's price. So when you increase demand, you've changed the demand curve, new demand curve, you haven't changed supply. This is not an idea about increasing the supply of health care. We don't have a bunch of new doctors or companies making goods that help, uh, you know, hospitals treat patients. No supply changes. So we're still on the same supply curve, and we're simply moving up to where that spot uh, is on the new demand curve, and I'm still on the old supply curve. Well, now you're going to have another effect. So that first effect is simply what happens when you increase demand. You move along the supply curve. So initially it'll look like, well, look, quantity's up. That's good. And, and price is up, but that's just because the cost savings haven't worked their way through. But we'll, this, this exercise will help um, clear up the likelihood of that. So now what we have is an impact caused by this effect. So by increasing the demand without changing supply, um, you've done a couple of things that are going to harm supply. First, you've made conditions worse for all the suppliers. So there's suddenly a lot more patients, uh, a lot more demand for products, a lot more demand for time of, you know, equipment makers, etc. Um, in, in, in forms, more forms have to be filled out, clerical, the whole thing, the whole chain. Uh, you're having more demand, but no increase in the supply of this. So what's going to happen is conditions are worse. People will drop out because the rewards of, of the job will not be as good. Either it's the same pay and worse conditions, something like that. Then on top of that, um, we may start to get some... Uh, Price controls, we're seeing it in the news now about the notion of price controls, price, what's a fair price? Well, again, that's a different rant as to whether 
uh, our government officials are qualified to make judgments on pricing when they probably don't have a lot of business uh, background or you know or marketing background. But that's another rant. Uh, the point in this is simply that, in effect, you're going to reduce the supply because of either um, prices not keeping pace with the increased demand for time, et cetera, or simply worse conditions, more pressure, uh, et cetera. And without tort reform, of course, uh, doctors continue to be forced out because of sheer un, you know, inability to pay through the insurance. And that's not addressed at all in these thoughts. So um, we're going to reduce supply. Now, when we do that, we're going to draw a curve called S1 that is parallel to the S0 line and up about, I'd say, half an inch or so or two inches, what have you, and draw that across a parallel to the S0 line, and now I have an S1 line. Now what happens is we have another X marks the spot, which is where this new S1 line crosses the D1 line. So what I'm going to do to try to get a sense of what's happening in the marketplace is I'm going to move from this point where the D1 demand curve crosses the S0 demand curve up towards, I'm still moving along D1 now, up toward the new supply curve. Well, what's happening is I'm moving northwest. So uh, to trace this back, I started at home plate. I moved to first base, which was to the D1, S0 curve. Now I'm moving to second base, which is D1, S1. And this can obviously you know, be a shape I can't predict or none of us could. But if we just make the simplest uh, assumptions, it, we're basically, we're now drawing a line straight down, and guess what? We're right back at the original Q. So quantity is down now, which makes sense because supply is down. So your first reaction is demand is up, and people try to cope, but then people leave, and supply is down. So Q is back right where we are, but if you'll note, if you followed along this graph, which is at this point admittedly unlikely, but who knows, maybe you have, our P, so if I draw a line from the new X marks the spot where the S1 curve meets the D1 curve, that point of intersection, and I move directly left horizontally to the P axis, I'm now at a new price, P2, that's not only higher than the original price, it's also higher than the price that you know, seem temporary. But once supply comes out, you start to get into a scarcity situation. And, um, you know, you, the point is price controls don't work. They didn't work for gasoline. They're not going to work for health care. And I'm very concerned as a citizen, as, an, as a citizen and as an equity owner, that we've got ideas out there that are going to destroy value. And that's my rant. Okay. Um, Hopefully, if you didn't like that rant, and again, it was long, I apologize, you skipped through it. I now have, um, I want to bring you three pretty decent value ideas this week. Um, they all come out of the software uh, area of this week's report. Let's see, where do I have, um, you know, I look through the banks, and I just can't do it like Tony Banks, and of course, Tony's not available right now. He's he may try to get on the show, not this week. And then there's a lot of financial services. I did look through every stock. 
There's a couple interesting ones in there, uh, including I took a long look at Alliance Bernstein, which has a 7 or 8% yield right now, certainly worth a look. Um, this Federated Investors looked interesting, um, but a little expensive. They're a service organization, I think. Let's see. I've got things just strewn around here. Uh, yeah, investment advisory, $407 billion. It's 87% money market. Pays a good yield. You know, it's, look, worth, it's, it's, it's worth a look, but I don't know. It wasn't super cheap, eight times EBITDA. I didn't pick that one this week. So, anyway, what else? Uh, Internet. You know, there's some interesting names in there. We've done them. I did look through there. Um, I've talked about United Online before. I, I, I frankly sold it. I became impatient. But it still pays a great yield. There may be a story there at some point built around classmates as a social networking site. They own that. But, you know, I didn't pick anything in there this week. What I ended up doing was picking stuff in this software area. Software has enormous incremental margins. So... Um, just think about it. If you sell a new software package, almost all the money that you get for that, other than maybe the commission if there is one, but you may have salaried people depending on at what level you're selling, um, that's all profit basically because, I mean, you know, you have already have all the cost in. Um, and uh, And so when you come out of a period where capital spending was so constrained as it was, and we're now just hearing the thought that the tech industry is coming back. Well, um, capital spending, you know, uh, capacity just simply wears out. So think about it. Even if, and this won't happen, but even if demand, not per capita, but just, you know, absolute, never grew again, which again, unlikely, right? But even in that scenario, you're going to have to have capital spending just simply to maintain capacity. And, of course, that's not going to happen. We're going to not only have capacity growth required for population growth, but we also have a 5,000-year history of um, demand per capita growing. Um, and, you know, not only is that true in the advanced uh, economies, but as the rest of the world catches up, you know, they'll be growing even faster. So it's 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 quite likely that that's going to continue. And we're sitting at a point right now where to still big, you know, areas of the market, they're not aware of that. You know, there's still people that think that maybe capital spending won't come back. And so um, that's less true. Of course, we've had this little bear market, so there is a little pessimism back in the market, and that's good. Um, and so, you know, I, uh, I got a couple ideas here uh, in that area. First up, DST Systems, ticker DST, page 2585. Uh, what do they do? DST provides information processing and computer software services and products to mutual funds and other financial services organizations. So the thesis simply might be that um, wealth per capita grows, capita is growing, and so the need for these sorts of services is growing they put up a 20% operating margin, something proprietary going on there. They're doing, a, you know, even in these, you know, difficult times, they're earning a mid-teens return on capital. They lever it a little bit, um, you know, 40% debt to capital. 
Um, but uh, I look back here, you know, they've always had a 20% operating margin, so interest coverage has never been an issue. Uh, they're seven times covered right now, and, and this is in a, you know, in a, in a trophy environment for operating income. So that looks pretty good. They, uh, they get up into, uh, you know, t- 30s, 40s% return on equity in some years. That's going to go down as equity grows. But even this year, uh, Value Line's projecting 25%. So, you know, that looks good. And I, I think that these systems, once you're into them, you know, it, it may be a long sell cycle on the way in. So there's a lot of barriers to entry, certainly. But once you're in, I think these customers, they just have a hard time turning you off because of the embedded, uh, you know, learning costs that would be associated with any switch. Um, and uh, and so productivity would immediately plummet for your whole team that works with any of this data. And so um, that's always... Um, uh, you know, a, a pretty solid renewal rate on these things. It doesn't say here, but I'm going to guess that, um, you know, some giant percentage of revenue is repeat customers from last year, which helps keeps your sales costs low and those sorts of things. According to this, um, let's see, well, domestic operations, 90%. I thought that might have said, re- you know, uh, repeat customers, but it doesn't. Let's see. No, I don't have that number here. Um, Value Line in their commentary talks about, you know, difficult time, drop in revenue, decreased level of services, et cetera. Um, maybe things will bounce back next year. You know, it's this kind of thing. Will things bounce back? I mean, who cares? Next year, year after, it's not exactly like the CD rates are burning a hole in your pocket. You know, you have time to wait. Um, I was talking to somebody today about how, uh, their clients were continuing to ask if they should keep money in a mattress. I mean, the point is mattresses on a relative basis are paying pretty well right now. At least the gap to CD rates is uh, narrower than it's been almost ever. So um, if you have a stock that requires patience, patience has never been cheaper than it is now at these kinds of rates. So um uh, next year or the year after, I'd say doesn't matter as much as is this thing cheap? Do they have a franchise? Are they going to have a chance to participate when capital spending comes back? And to all those things, I'm saying yes. In fact, um, the company seems to be so well run that in the last five years, they've developed a negative working capital, which you know means that current liabilities, which don't pay interest, um, are greater than their current assets. So they're, they're actually getting their own um, customers in some cases um, or vendors, I guess, in most cases to, uh, you know, pay, pay in effect for part of their capital structure for, at, for free. So that's a nice thing. Um, the valuation on this thing looks pretty good. It's um, total enterprise value is uh, about $3 billion, And that's the, you know, that's the price we'd have to pay to own the, uh, the whole company have rights to the entire cash flow stream. And uh, the EBITDA, or earnings before interest taxes and depreciation, which is a proxy for cash flow prior to capital uh, requirements and working capital requirements, uh, value lines showing a 20% operating margin, $2.2 billion. So what's that, $450 million or something like that? So again, I'm, uh, no, I don't have a calculator here, but Three billion over four hundred fifty million is about seven times, and so um, 
if I look at the inverse of that, that's about a 14% return on my capital. And then uh, according to value line, I'm going to get 4% growth over the next five years. I think it's got to be higher. It was 12% in the last five. It was 15 in the last 10. Why I would just go to four, you know, I don't know. Um, stocks at a big discount uh, to most other firms, and uh, and yet their franchise seems pretty good. So DST Systems, page 2585. Okay, next up, very similar story. Um, I've got a little compare and contrast. I'm not going to spend too much time comparing and contrasting, but it's worth doing because there's two companies. They both provide services to banks. One's called J. Henry & Associates, ticker J-K-H-Y, page 2589. And the other one is called Fiserv, uh, ticker F-I-S-V, and that's on page 2588. So they're right near each other. And they both provide software to operate banks. Uh, Fiserv, it says, provides internet banking, bill payment, debit card processing, risk management to 18,000 financial institutions. So they're big. They do $4 billion in revenue, Fiserv, industry standard company. Then you have this little uh, J. Henry. It's much smaller. Um, it's still big, though, but $1.8 in market cap compared to $7 billion for Fiserv. They do $800 million in revenue instead of $4 billion um, for Fiserv. Um, so you can already see on a revenue basis uh, they're a bit more expensive uh, at over two times revenue to market cap, whereas Fiserv is, um, you know, 1. Point, uh, whatever, 1.7 or something like that. Um, According to ValueLine, J. Henry also provides uh, integrated computer systems and services to banks and other financial institutions, develops several banking acquisition software systems. I mean, you know, there's, I'm certain, little differences in their offering, um, and I couldn't tell you that I know the difference between the two. But my guess is, is that the sales force of one of these firms can get you all the same stuff as the sales force of one of the other firms, whether they mix and match their own product with outside product. You know, I'm certain that's going on. But um, the margin structures are similar. Fiserv has a, you know, upper 20s, low 30s percent operating margin. Jay Henry has a in the same area, upper 20s percent operating margin. Fiserv is showing a, you know, a, a you know, a 10 percent return on capital, uh, and has you know rarely had a good string of good numbers. Jay Henry is showing mid-teens, very consistent, so uh, you know, much nicer there. Um, but Jay Henry's more expensive. You know, it's got higher quality, um, no debt whatsoever. Fiserv has. 53% debt to capital. So, you know, uh, J. Henry, just a much, uh, I can't say it's better run because it's small and maybe they'll run into their own uh, headwinds and, and such as they get bigger. But right now, it's a much better company. Uh, much higher returns on capital, no debt. To me, that just means uh, opportunity down the road. Um, margins a little lower than Fiserv, but... Um, that's only been true this year, and, you know, who knows what that's about exactly, but could be an opportunity for J. Henry to raise prices. It could mean that Fiserv raised prices, got the higher margin, but now they're not as competitive, so J. Henry's in a position to pick up share. It could be that. You know, I don't know, but it's interesting because um, uh, it, it 
it, it looks like from a return on capital point of view, Jay Henry really beats Pfizer year in and year out, just uh, no contest, and yet Jay Henry right now has a lower margin. So when you look at that, you might say, well, gee, I want the higher margin company. I might say, well, wait a minute. I think higher return on capital trumps margin. It could be that the margin is a strategy to undercut the price of Pfizer and win share, improving their cost structure uh, even further, or leveraging you know the um, uh, the the R and D or the capital cost of the software over even more sales that you know are are uh, are better priced than the competitor. And the fact that uh, Jay Henry has eight hundred million in sales and Pfizer has four billion. I mean, who's more likely to lose share? Everyone you call on is a Fiserv customer, possibly, and only uh, every, what, fifth guy you call on is uh, a J. Henry customer. Or it could be that they both have all the customers, but Fiserv does everything, and J. Henry just does a little thing, which either way, uh, you know, if J. Henry can just start calling Fiserv clients, you know, it's a pretty easy call list. So what I end up liking is I end up liking J. Henry better. The valuation, um, J. Henry's 15 times earnings, Fiserv 12. So on a pure valuation, you might prefer Fiserv. Enterprise value to EBITDA, Fiserv is a $10.3 billion enterprise value, $1.4 billion in sales. That's a 7.5 enterprise value to EBITDA. And J. Henry... Uh, 1.7 billion over to 10 million. Call it. That's an 8.5 uh, multiple. So uh, Jay Henry's a little, you know, a little higher. And on a, you know, on a return basis, one over 8.5 is uh, somewhere around 12 percent. One over 7.5 is somewhere, uh, you know, around 11 percent. So uh, I'm sorry, reverse of that. So I'm getting about a percent. Uh, lower return uh, cash on cash with J. Henry reflected in its higher multiple. But, you know, on the other hand, um, maybe I get a higher growth rate at J. Henry. So um, what I end up coming out, uh, how I end up coming out is I, I'm going to prefer J. Henry. I'm paying up a multiple point, but I'm getting a superior company that looks like for many years makes good choices with capital. Returns on capital are steady and high, and they have yet to use any debt, which means if something really great came along, they could do it. And yet I also know they're smart enough to not do something stupid and instead, uh, you know, reinvest um, either in, uh, you know, in, 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 in the dividend, which they don't pay a lot, but they do have a consistent history, at least over the last five years, of buying shares back. Um, but, you know, so does Pfizer, so that's a toss. But I end up just preferring the higher return on capital uh, and consistency and don't think I'm paying up that much for for it, and also the growth opportunity with J. Henry being a lot smaller than Pfizer. So uh, J. Henry, twenty five eighty nine, and uh, let's see. Sorry if I'm maybe did I was I rambling a little bit on that one? I don't know. It's just it's an interesting story to talk about. So I get a, you know emails from students and things, and so um, you know that's some kind of case study. Which one would you buy? I mean, the truth is, you could buy half each if you really felt that way about it. But I'll tell you, I don't. I don't. Jay Henry, um, you know, has a lot more growth potential and a much better company, so it will probably 
continue to take share from Pfizer. All right, last up this week, Intuit, um, ticker INTU, page 2591. Um, Let's see, what do I like about this? Well, my theme is that wealth is growing faster than population is growing because per capita wealth is growing. So, And so the need for personal uh, financial software is growing faster than, um, you know, the average need for the average good as measured by, let's say, GDP growth. So I like that. I've got a little wind at my back. Intuit also has the benefit in a, in a marketplace that over time could be a commodity. I mean, it's just software that people can copy. So ultimately, you need a brand, and these guys have a lot of great brands. They have uh, Quicken, which was their original product back when the Apple II came out, of which I had one. Quicken, honestly, was one of the uh, first programs that could really do any useful work on a computer, on a personal computer. And then along the way, I mean, I guess it's getting to be a long time ago, they bought uh, the company with TurboTax. So they have Quicken and TurboTax. Of course, they work together. And they evolved uh, QuickBooks. So, I mean, these guys are really in your business. It's very hard to unplug because you have so much time invested in in the service, in the product that you get from them. Uh, It's not just their software, of course, it's them organizing all your work that you've put into the software. So that's a big investment. And, um, and so um, it's a stable uh, business. When I look back over time, they've never, you know, should I say never? Let's see. Yeah, I'm not, I'm just not seeing a down year, even last year, even this year. um, They're putting up a Upper 20s operating margin, again, very consistently. Um, They're uh, looking here for their capital spending. You know, a cash flow per share, 250. Capital spending per share, 30 cents. So, you know, when you go and look at a steel company or a big industrial firm, I talked a little about this last week, um, you know, it's a little misleading, particularly when they end up depreciating a big part of that. doesn't always show up in the earnings, but in order to keep current on some of this stuff and stay competitive worldwide, you got to invest a lot of money. And so, when you know cash flow less capital spending is uh, is kind of a good thing to look at um, in terms of what am I getting paid right now versus how much is sort of on the come down the road. And uh, when you have to go down the road, everything's uncertain. So again, bird in the hand, you know. Uh, that was probably correct. So in this case, there's almost no CapEx here against the cash flow, and that's going back for the entire history of the company. Um, They do manage to generate enough cash to buy some stock. Almost every year they've bought shares. And uh, their returns on capital, well, let's see, they had a little dip into the single digits back in 00 and 01, but since that time it's double-digit, and they've got a little bit of debt, 35% debt to capital. But, um, you know, as you've heard me talk about in the past, uh, high-margin companies, you know, their operating earnings, or call it um, EBITDA in the case of Value Line, is, you know, near a billion dollars, and their long-term interest expense is $55 million. So they're, you know, they're, they're very comfortable on that. They've got nearly a billion in cash, 
which is offsetting nearly a billion in debt. So they're virtually debt-free, even you know with the number I just gave you. And so uh, the valuation is a little higher than I might normally like to pay. But in the case of this, you've got a market growing. You've got a brand that um, is uh, you know, certainly well-received and in a position to gain share through economies of scale, in part because a really well-known brand is just a big barrier. And they managed to stay tuned to having um, at least every year, every other year, the best software in the space because, I mean, there's only a handful, so they're going to get their share of awards. And um, and so, uh, you know, that's a pretty protected area at these kind of margins. There's something going on. I don't have to guess about that. What I might have to guess a little about is exactly what it is, and I think it's uh, excellent execution combined with brand, and that's just a that's a hard thing to beat in a consumer category where innovation is easy. You know, it's not like someone's going to invent a new element or a new way to generate energy or anything. It's it's accounting. So, you know, they're, they're in a position to get ahead and then stay ahead in these areas. And so um, I think they've got that. You know, it's like New York City getting uh, the mouth, mouth to, to, the, to the Hudson. We got it. So... There you go. And I think these guys got this, and it's going to be hard to displace. you got to pay up a little bit for that. Um, enterprise value is $8.3 billion. I'm sorry, $9.3 billion. I'm not doing the math here right. And operating uh, income or EBITDA is right around a billion. So I'm looking at a 9.3 multiple, which is um, you know somewhere between 10 and 11% on a cash-on-cash return. That's a little less than I'd like. However, come on, I look at the CD rate, I look at even the long bond. Uh, I mean, this isn't the long bond, but um, it looks pretty solid as a gatekeeper to all personal financial software, as I just mentioned. So a 10% yield in this environment, if you know we were to buy this whole company, I think that's pretty attractive. And then you're going to get some growth, which according to Value Line is, you know, 10 11%. Um, you know who knows ultimately what that could be it's going to be population growth um you know times price something like that uh times share gain you know i don't know um one of the things they've got going that's pretty interesting and one of our guys in our shop pointed this out to me we i own this by the way so i should tell you that but of all the sites that are helping people organize a little bit there's this little thing called mint mint.com and evidently um and i've been there you know it's it's very easy to use i see that i think that intuit saw this thing coming and so um last fall i believe that they just bought it and so it's theirs um it showed up on some list recently i forget where i was looking as uh, one of the top uh financial personal financial sites I'm not sure what ranking I saw that, Morningstar somewhere. But uh, in any case, uh, they're maintaining their ownership of this space, and they're proving it by uh, buying this best-of-class provider last fall. Uh, there's no income or anything associated with that, but it looks like it's gaining share pretty fast, and uh, ultimately it's a path to uh, probably get people into you know owning QuickBooks or Quicken or TurboTax or something. And, um, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that could ultimately come out of that. And I'm, I'm just uh, uh, happy to see them 
keeping a, a you know a, a leading position in that area. So um, there's not much else I know here. You know, there's a big competitive environment, of course, for software. H and R Block does tax cut, and Jackson Hewitt, I'm sure, another tax guy is going to have something. But it uh, it looks like a pretty solid franchise. The numbers have been consistently good. It looks like between cash-on-cash cash return and growth, you're comfortably in a 20% type of total return area. And this mint.com could be something. So uh, that's about all. What else can I tell you? Um, favorite idea this week is going to have to be, uh, I don't know. Let's see. I mean, in, Intuit is a good story, but it's, it's $9 billion in market cap. So everything I'm saying is in the stock somehow, even, I mean, it's hard to, I think it's, again, I, I'm coming from behind the curtain. I think Intuit is a good idea, but I just say um, it's a large cap, so it's hard to assume that the market doesn't already know everything I've talked about. I'm sure they do. It's just a matter of assigning different probabilities, and so there would be my judgment on that. Jay Henry, on the other hand, um, to me, it looks like they've got a lot of room to grow. Um, their revenue is a fraction of uh, Fiserv. Uh, who knows, maybe they're a candidate to be acquired. Um, and even though I'd say it's a little pricey, it's, uh, compared to history, uh, still pretty cheap. So my favorite this week, J. Henry, ticker JKHY, page 2589. And ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening in this week. That's all I have with uh, the Value Line Observer. Thanks for listening in. See you next week, everybody.